Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Next article from BMJ. Mortality risks associated with floods in 761 communities worldwide, time series study. Objective to evaluate lag response associations and effect modifications of exposure to floods with risks of all cause, cardiovascular, and respiratory mortality on a global scale. Design time series study. Setting 761 communities in 35 countries or territories with at least one flood event during the study period. Participants Multi-Country Multi-City Collaborative Research Network Database, Australian Cause of Death Unit Record File, New Zealand Integrated Data Infrastructure, and the International Network for the Demographic Evaluation of Populations and their Health Network Database. Main outcome measures the main outcome was daily counts of deaths. An estimation for the lag response association between flood and daily mortality risk was modeled, and the relative risks over the lag period were accumulated to calculate overall effects. Attributable fractions of mortality due to floods were further calculated. A quasi-Poisson model with a distributed lag nonlinear function was used to examine how daily death risk was associated with flooded days in each community, and then the community-specific associations were pooled using random effects multivariate meta-analyzes. Flooded days were defined as days from the start date to the end date of flood events. Results a total of 47.6 million all-cause deaths, 11.1 million cardiovascular deaths, and 4.9 million respiratory deaths were analyzed. Over the 761 communities, mortality risks increased and persisted for up to 60 days, 50 days for cardiovascular mortality, after a flooded day. The cumulative relative risks for all-cause, cardiovascular, and respiratory mortality were 1.021, 95% confidence interval 1.006 to 1.036, 1.026, 1.005 to 1.047, and 1.049, 1.008 to 1.092, respectively. The associations varied across countries or territories and regions. The flood mortality associations appeared to be modified by climate type and were stronger in low-income countries and in populations with a low human development index or high proportion of older people. In communities impacted by flood, up to 0.10% of all-cause deaths, 0.18% of cardiovascular deaths, and 0.41% of respiratory deaths were attributed to floods. Conclusions This study found that the risks of all-cause, cardiovascular, and respiratory mortality increased for up to 60 days after exposure to flood and the associations could vary by local climate type, socioeconomic status, and older age. Next article from Lancet. 
Camulitzuma plus rivasurinib versus serafinib as first-line therapy for unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma, CARES 310, a randomized, open-label, international phase 3 study. Background Immunotherapy with immune checkpoint inhibitors combined with an anti-angiogenic tyrosine kinase inhibitor, TKI, has been shown to improve overall survival versus anti-angiogenic therapy alone in advanced solid tumors, but not in hepatocellular carcinoma. Therefore, a clinical study was conducted to compare the efficacy and safety of the anti-PD-1 antibody camrelitzumab plus the VEK for 2 targeted TKI rivasurinib, also known as apatinib, versus serafinib as first-line treatment for unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma. Methods This randomized, open-label, International Phase 3 trial, CARES 310, was done at 95 study sites across 13 countries and regions worldwide. Patients with unresectable or metastatic hepatocellular carcinoma who had not previously received any systemic treatment were randomly assigned, one-to-one, to receive either camrelitzumab 200 mg intravenously every two weeks plus rivasurinib 250 mg orally once daily or serafinib 400 mg orally twice daily. Findings Between June 28, 2019, and March 24, 2021, 543 patients were randomly assigned to the camrelitzumab rivasurinib, N equals 272, or serafinib, N equals 271, group. At the primary analysis for progression-free survival, May 10, 2021, median follow-up was 7 middle.8 months, IQR 4 middle.1 to 10 middle.6. Median progression-free survival was significantly improved with camrelitzumab rivasurinib versus serafinib, 5 middle.6 months, 95% C5 middle.5 to 6 middle.3, versus 3 middle.7 months, 2 middle.8 to 3 middle.7, hazard ratio, HR, 0 middle.52, 95% C0 middle.41 to 0 middle.65, one-sided P less than 0 middle.0001. At the interim analysis for overall survival, February 8, 2022, median follow-up was 14 middle.5 months, IQR 9 middle.1 to 18 middle.7. Median overall survival was significantly extended with camrelitzumab rivasurinib versus serafinib, 22 middle.1 months, 95% C 19 middle.1 to 27 middle.2 versus 15 middle.2 months, 13 middle.0 to 18 middle.5, HR 0 middle.62, 95% C 0 middle.49 to 0 middle.80, one-sided P less than 0 middle.0001. The most common grade 3 or 4 treatment-related adverse events were hypertension, 102, 38% of 272 patients in the camrelitzumab rivasurinib group versus 40, 15% of 269 patients in the serafinib group, Palmer plantar erythritis esthesia syndrome, 33, 12%, versus 41, 15%, increased aspartate aminotransferase, 45, 17%, versus 14, 5%, and increased alanine aminotransferase, 35, 13%, versus 8, 3%. Treatment-related serious adverse events were reported in 66, 24%, patients in the camrelitzumab rivasurinib group and 16, 6%, in the serafinib group. Interpretation 
Camelitzumab plus rivasorinib showed a statistically significant and clinically meaningful benefit in progression-free survival and overall survival compared with serafinib for patients with unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma, presenting as a new and effective first-line treatment option for this population. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Phase 2 trial of atezolizumab combined with carboplatin and pemetrexed for patients with advanced non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer with untreated brain metastases. Purpose. The Atezo brain study evaluated atezolizumab combined with chemotherapy in patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, NSCLC, with untreated brain metastases, a population traditionally excluded from trials. Methods. This single-arm phase 2 clinical trial enrolled patients with advanced non-squamous NSCLC with untreated brain metastases without neurologic symptoms or asymptomatic with medical treatment. Dexamethasone was allowed up to 4 mg once daily. Atezolizumab plus carboplatin and pemetrexide was given for 4 to 6 cycles followed by atezolizumab plus pemetrexide until progression for a maximum of 2 years. The primary endpoints were to determine the progression-free survival, PFS, rate at 12 weeks and the incidence of grade greater than or equal to three adverse events during the first nine weeks. Intracranial outcomes were assessed using response assessment in neuro-oncology brain metastases criteria. Results 40 patients were enrolled and 22, 55%, were receiving corticosteroids at baseline. The overall 12-week PFS rate was 62.2%, 95% credibility interval, CRE. 47.1 to 76.2. The rate of grade 3 quarters adverse events during the first 9 weeks was 27.5%. Most neurologic events were grade 1 and 2 but 5 patients, 12.5%, experienced grade 3 to 4 neurologic events. With a median follow-up of 31 months, intracranial median PFS was 6.9 months and response rate was 42.7%, 95% CRE. 28.1 to 57.9. Systemic median PFS was 8.9 months and response rate was 45%, 95% CRE, 28.1 to 57.9. The median overall survival, OS, was 11.8 months, 95% C, 7.6 to 16.9, and the two-year OS rate was 27.5%, 95% C, 16.6 to 45.5. Conclusion. Atezolizumab plus carboplatin and pemetrexide demonstrates activity in patients with advanced non-squamous NSCLC with untreated brain metastases with an acceptable safety profile. Next article from Hepatology. Etiological cure prevents further decompensation and mortality in patients with cirrhosis with ascites as the single first decompensating event. Background and aims. Removal slash suppression of the primary etiological factor reduces the risk of decompensation and mortality in compensated cirrhosis. However, in decompensated cirrhosis, the impact of etiologic treatment is less predictable. We aim to evaluate the impact of etiological treatment in patients with cirrhosis who developed ascites single-index decompensating event. Approach and results 
Patients with cirrhosis and ascites as single first decompensation event were included and followed until death, liver transplantation, or Q3-2021. The etiology was considered cured, alcohol abstinence, hepatitis C cure, and hepatitis B suppression, versus controlled, partial removal of etiologic factors, versus uncontrolled. A total of 622 patients were included in the study. Etiology was cured in 146 patients, 24%, controlled in 170, 27%, and uncontrolled in 306, 49%. During follow-up, 350 patients, 56%, developed further decompensation. In multivariable analysis, adjusted for age, sex, varices, etiology, child pew class, creatinine, sodium, and era of decompensation, etiological cure was independently associated with a lower risk of further decompensation, HR, 0.46, P equals 0.001. During follow-up, 250 patients, 40.2% died, while 104, 16.7%, underwent LT. In multivariable analysis, etiological cure was independently associated with a lower mortality risk, HR, 0.35, P less than 0.001. Conclusions In patients with cirrhosis and ascites as single first decompensating event, the cure of liver disease etiology represents a main treatment goal since this translates into considerably lower risks of further decompensation and mortality. Next article from Blood. Real-world experience of CAR T-cell therapy in older patients with relapse-slash-refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. The emergence of chimeric antigen receptor, CAR, T-cell therapy has changed the treatment landscape for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, DLBCL. However, real-world experience reporting outcomes among older patients treated with CAR T-cell therapy is limited. We leveraged the 100% Medicare fee-for-service claims database and analyzed outcomes and cost associated with CAR T-cell therapy in 551 older patients, aged greater than or equal to 65 years, with DLBCL who received CAR T-cell therapy between 2018 and 2020. CAR T-cell therapy was used in third line and beyond in 19% of patients aged 65 to 69 years and 22% among those aged 70 to 74 years, compared with 13% of patients aged greater than or equal to 75 years. Most patients received CAR T-cell therapy in an inpatient setting, 83%, with an average length of stay of 21 days. The median event-free survival, EFS, following CAR T-cell therapy was 7.2 months. Patients aged greater than or equal to 75 years had significantly shorter EFS compared with patients aged 65 to 69 and 70 to 74 years, with 12-month EFS estimates of 34%, 43%, and 52%, respectively, P equals 0.002. The median overall survival was 17.1 months, and there was no significant difference by age groups. The median total health care cost during the 90-day follow-up was $352,572 and was similar across all age groups. CAR T-cell therapy was associated with favorable effectiveness, but the CAR T-cell therapy use in older patients was low, especially in patients aged greater than or equal to 75 years, and this age group had a lower rate of EFS, which illustrates the unmet need for more accessible, effective, 
and tolerable therapy in older patients, especially those age greater than or equal to 75 years. Next article from Clinical Liver Disease. Next article from Clinical Infectious Diseases. One week of oral camistat versus placebo in non-hospitalized adults with mild to moderate coronavirus disease 2019, a randomized controlled phase 2 trial. Background. Camistat inhibits severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, infection in vitro. We studied the safety and efficacy of camistat in active 2-A5401 a phase two-thirds platform trial of therapeutics for COVID-19 in non-hospitalized adults. Methods We conducted a phase two study in adults with mild to moderate COVID-19 randomized to oral camistat for seven days or a pooled placebo arm. Primary outcomes were time to improvement in COVID-19 symptoms through day 28, proportion of participants with SARS-CoV-2 RNA below the lower limit of quantification, LIC, from nasopharyngeal swabs through day 14, and grade greater than or equal to three treatment emergent adverse events, TEs, through day 28. Results Of 216 participants, 109 randomized to camistat, 107 to placebo, who initiated study intervention, 45% reported less than or equal to five days of symptoms at study entry and 26% met the protocol definition of higher risk of progression to severe COVID-19. Median age was 37 years. Median time to symptom improvement was 9 days in both arms, p equals 0.99. There were no significant differences in the proportion of participants with SARS-CoV-2 RNA luck on days 3, 7, and 14. Through day 28, 6, 5.6%, participants in the camistat arm and 5, 4.7%, in the placebo arm were hospitalized, one participant in the camistat arm subsequently died. Grade greater than or equal to 3 T's occurred in 10.1% of camistat versus 6.5% of placebo participants, p equals 0.35. Conclusions In a phase 2 study of non-hospitalized adults with mild to moderate COVID-19, oral camistat did not accelerate viral clearance or time to symptom improvement, or reduce hospitalizations or deaths. Next article from Journal of Infectious Diseases. Epidemiology and Risk Factors of Norovirus Infections Among Diarrhea Patients Admitted to Tertiary Care Hospitals in Bangladesh. Background. Norovirus is a major cause of endemic acute gastroenteritis, AGE, worldwide. We describe the epidemiology, risk factors, and genotypic distribution of noroviruses among hospitalized patients of all ages in Bangladesh. Methods. From March 2018 to October 2021, 1,250 age case patients and controls, age, sex, season, and site matched, were enrolled at 10 hospitals. Demographic and clinical information was collected, real-time reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, RT-PCR, used to test stool specimens and positive samples were genotyped. Results Norovirus was detected in 9% of cases, 111 of 1,250, and 15%, 182 of 1,250, of controls. 
82% of norovirus-positive cases were in children less than 5 years old. Norovirus-positive age hospitalizations occurred year-round, with peaks in April and October. Risk factors for norovirus included age less than 5 years, adjusted odds ratio, 3.1, 95% confidence interval, 1.9 to 5.2, and exposure to a patient with age in the 10 days before enrollment, 3.8, 1.9 to 7.2. G.3P16 and G.4 Sydney P16 were the predominant genotypes. Conclusions We highlight the burden of norovirus in hospital settings. Young age and recent exposure to a patient with age were risk factors for norovirus. A high prevalence of norovirus among controls might represent asymptomatic reinfections or prolonged shedding from a previous infection. Carefully designed longitudinal studies are needed to improve our understanding of norovirus infections in Bangladesh. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. Pan American League of Associations for Rheumatology Guidelines for the Treatment of Takayasu Arteritis. Objective To develop the first evidence based Pan American League of Associations for Rheumatology, PANLER, Guidelines for the Treatment of Takayasu Arteritis, TAK. Methods A panel of vasculitis experts developed a series of clinically meaningful questions addressing the treatment of TAC patients in the PICO population slash intervention slash comparator slash outcome format. A systematic literature review was performed by a team of methodologists. The evidence quality was assessed according to the grade, grading of recommendations slash assessment slash development slash evaluation methodology. The panel of vasculitis experts voted each PICO question and made recommendations, which required greater than or equal to 70% agreement among the voting members. Results 11 recommendations were developed. Oral glucocorticoids are conditionally recommended for newly diagnosed and relapsing TAC patients. The addition of non-targeted synthetic immunosuppressants, for example, methotrexate, leflunamide, azathioprine, or mycophenolate mephetal, is recommended for patients with newly diagnosed or relapsing disease that is not organ or life-threatening. For organ or life-threatening disease, we conditionally recommend tumor necrosis factor inhibitors, for example, infliximab or adalimumab, or tocilizumab with consideration for short courses of cyclophosphamide as an alternative in case of restricted access to biologics. For patients relapsing despite non-targeted synthetic immunosuppressants, we conditionally recommend to switch from one non-targeted synthetic immunosuppressant to another or to add tumor necrosis factor inhibitors or tocilizumab. We conditionally recommend low-dose aspirin for patients with involvement of cranial or coronary arteries to prevent ischemic complications. We strongly recommend performing surgical vascular interventions during periods of remission whenever possible. Conclusion The first Pandler treatment guidelines for TAC provide evidence-based guidance for the treatment of TAC patients in Latin American countries. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology. The 2023 ACR-Euler Antiphospholipid Syndrome Classification Criteria. Objective. To develop new antiphospholipid syndrome, APS, classification criteria with high specificity for use in observational studies and trials, 
jointly supported by the American College of Rheumatology, ACR and Euler. Methods This international multidisciplinary initiative included four phases, 1. Phase I, criteria generation by surveys and literature review, 2. Phase II, criteria reduction by modified Delphi and nominal group technique exercises, 3. Phase III, criteria definition, further reduction with the guidance of real-world patient scenarios, and weighting via consensus-based multi-criteria decision analysis, and threshold identification, and 4. Phase four, validation using independent adjudicators consensus as the gold standard. Results The 2023 ACR-Euler APS classification criteria include an entry criterion of at least one positive antiphospholipid antibody, APPLE, test within three years of identification of an APPLE-associated clinical criterion, followed by additive weighted criteria, score range 1 to 7 points each, clustered into six clinical domains, macrovascular venous thromboembolism, macrovascular arterial thrombosis, microvascular obstetric, cardiac valve, and hematologic, and two laboratory domains, lupus anticoagulant functional coagulation assays, and solid phase enzyme-linked immunosorbent assays for Ig-slash-IM anticardiolipin and or Ig-slash-IM anti-beta-2 glycoproteinae antibodies. Patients accumulating at least three points each from the clinical and laboratory domains are classified as having APS. In the validation cohort, the new APS criteria versus the 2006 revised Sapporo classification criteria had a specificity of 99% versus 86% and a sensitivity of 84% versus 99%. Conclusion these new ACR-Euler APS classification criteria were developed using rigorous methodology with multidisciplinary international input. Hierarchically clustered, weighted, and risk-stratified criteria reflect the current thinking about APS, providing high specificity and a strong foundation for future APS research. Next article from Circulation. Changes in cardiovascular spending, care utilization, and clinical outcomes associated with participation in bundled payments for care improvement, advanced. Background. Bundled payments for care improvement, advanced, BPCIA, is a Medicare initiative that aims to incentivize reductions in spending for episodes of care that start with a hospitalization and end 90 days after discharge. Cardiovascular disease, an important driver of Medicare spending, is one of the areas of focus BPCIA. It is unknown whether BPCIA is associated with spending reductions or quality improvements for the three cardiovascular medical events or five cardiovascular procedures in the model. Methods In this retrospective cohort study, we conducted difference in differences analyzes using Medicare claims for patients discharged between January 1, 2017, and September 30, 2019, to assess differences between BPCIA hospitals and matched non-participating control hospitals. Our primary outcomes were the differential changes in spending, before versus after implementation of BPCIA, for cardiac medical and procedural conditions at BPCIA hospitals compared with controls. Secondary outcomes included changes in patient complexity, care utilization, healthy days at home, readmissions and mortality. Results. Baseline spending for cardiac medical episodes at BPCIA hospitals was $25,606. 
The differential change in spending for cardiac medical episodes at BPCI versus control hospitals was $16.95% C, minus $228 to $261, P equals 0.90. Baseline spending for cardiac procedural episodes at BPCI hospitals was $37,961. The differential change in spending for cardiac procedural episodes was $171.95% C, minus $429 to $772, P equals 0.58. There were minimal differential changes in physicians' care patterns such as the complexity of treated patients or in their care utilization. At BPCI versus control hospitals, there were no significant differential changes in rates of 90-day readmissions, differential change, 0.27%, 95% C, minus 0.25% to 0.80%, for medical episodes, differential change, 0.31%, 95% C, minus 0.98% to 1.60%, for procedural episodes, or mortality, differential change, minus 0.14%, 95% C, minus 0.50% to 0.23%, for medical episodes, differential change, minus 0.36%, 95% C, minus 1.25% to 0.54%, for procedural episodes. Conclusions Participation in BPCIA was not associated with spending reductions, changes in care utilization, or quality improvements for the cardiovascular medical events or procedures offered in the model. Next article from ACC Home-Based Walking and Supervised Treadmill Exercise in PAD. Study Questions. Does home-based walking exercise improve 6-minute walk, 6 megawatts, more than supervised treadmill exercise in people with peripheral artery disease, PAD? Methods The authors performed an individual participant-level data meta-analysis from five randomized clinical trials. The included studies were published between 2009 to 2022. Three of the studies compared supervised treadmill exercise to non-exercise controls and two studies compared home-based walking exercise to non-exercise controls. The primary outcome of interest is the change in 6 MW distance at 6 months. Other key outcome measures include maximal treadmill walking distance and the walking impairment questionnaire, WIQ, at 6-month follow-up. Results Among the five randomized clinical trials, 719 participants with PAD, mean age 58.8 years, 46.5% female, were included. Compared to non-exercise controls, Supervised treadmill exercise was associated with a significant improvement in 6 WM by 32.9 meters, 95% confidence interval, c, 20.6 to 45.6 meters. Compared to non-exercise controls, home-based walking exercise was associated with a significant improvement in 6 WM by 50.7 meters, 95% c, 34.8 to 66.7 meters. Compared with supervised treadmill exercise, Home-based walking exercise was associated with significantly greater improvement in 6 MW distance, 23.8 meters, 95% C, 3.6 to 44.0 meters, and mean WIC scores, 2.70 versus 9.67.
However, home-based walking exercise is associated with less improvement in maximal treadmill walking distance than supervised treadmill exercise, minus 132.5 meters, 95% C. Minus 192.9 to minus 72.1 meters. Conclusions The authors concluded that home-based walking exercise was associated with greater improvement in 6 megawatts as compared to supervised treadmill exercise for patients with PAD. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Diagnosis and Incidence of Congenital Combined Pituitary Hormone Deficiency in Denmark, a National Observational Study. Context. Congenital Combined Pituitary Hormone Deficiency, CCPHD, is the loss of greater than or equal to two pituitary hormones caused by congenital factors. Objective. We aim to estimate the national incidence of CCPHD diagnosed before age 18 years and in subgroups. Methods Patients with CCPHD were identified in the Danish National Patient Registry and Danish Hospital Registries in the period 1996 to 2020. Hospital files were reviewed and incidences calculated using background population data. Incidence was the main outcome measure. Results We identified 128 patients with CCPHD, 88, 68.8% were males. The median range, age at diagnosis was 6.2, 0 0.01 to 19.0, years. The median, 25th, 75th percentile, number of hormone deficiencies at diagnosis was 3, 3, 4 at less than 1 year versus 2, 2, 2 at 1 to 17 years, p less than 0 0.0001. Abnormal pituitary magnetic resonance imaging findings were seen in 70.3%, 83118. For those born in Denmark aged less than 18 years at diagnosis, N equals 116-128, the estimated national incidence, 95% C, of CCPHD was 10.34, 7.79 13.72, for 100,000 births, with an annual incidence rate of 5.74. 4.33 to 7.62 per million. In subgroup analysis, diagnosis less than 1 versus 1 to 17 years, the incidence was highest in the 1 to 17 years subgroup, 7.97, 5.77 to 11.00, versus 1.98, 1.39 to 2.84, for 100,000 births, whereas the annual incidence rate was highest at less than 1 year, 19.8, 13.9 to 28.4, versus 4.69, 3.39 to 6.47, per million births. Conclusion CCPHD had the highest incidence rate and the most hormone deficiencies in those diagnosed at less than one year. The incidence was highest in the 1 to 17 years age group, underscoring the need for multiple pituitary hormone investigations throughout childhood and adolescence in children with only one hormone deficiency. Gram-negative bacteria and lipopolysaccharides as risk factors for the occurrence of diabetic foot. Context. Imbalance of the skin microbial community could impair skin immune homeostasis and thus trigger skin lesions. Dysbiosis of skin microbiome may be involved in the early pathogenesis of diabetic foot, BF. 
However, the potential mechanism remains unclear. Objective to investigate the dynamic composition and function of the foot-skin microbiome with risk stratification for DF and assess whether dysbiosis of the skin microbiome induces diabetic skin lesions. Methods We enrolled 90 consecutive subjects who were divided into five groups based on DF risk stratification, very low, low, moderate, and high risk for ulcers and a healthy control group. Integrated analysis of 16S ribosomal RNA and metagenomic sequencing of cotton swab samples was applied to identify the foot-skin microbiome composition and functions in subjects. Then a mouse model of microbiota transplantation was used to evaluate the effects of the skin microbiome on diabetic skin lesions. Results The results demonstrated that, with a progression of diabetic complications, the proportion of gram-negative bacteria in plantar skin increased. At the species level, metagenome sequencing analyzes showed Moraxella osloensis to be a representative core strain in a high-risk group. The major microbial metabolites affecting diabetic skin lesions were increased amino acid metabolites, and antibiotic resistance genes in microorganisms were abundant. Skin microbiota from high-risk patients induced more inflammatory cell infiltration, similar to the lipopolysaccharide, LPS-stimulated response, which was inhibited by toll-like receptor 4, TLR4, antagonists. Conclusions The skin microbiomes in patients with diabetes undergoes dynamic changes at taxonomic and functional levels with the progression of diabetic complications. The increase in gram-negative bacteria on the skin surface through LP's TLR4 signal transduction could induce inflammatory response in early diabetic skin lesions. Next article from Neurology. Randomized Phase 2 Study of the Safety and Efficacy of Semirinumab in Participants with Mild to Moderate Alzheimer's Disease. Background and Objectives Accumulation of Tau Pathology in Alzheimer's Disease AD Correlates with Cognitive Decline. Anti-Tau Immunotherapies were proposed as potential interventions in AD. While antibodies targeting N-terminal Tau failed to demonstrate clinical efficacy in prodromal to mild AD, their utility at other disease stages was not evaluated in prior studies. Laureate is a phase 2 study of an anti-tau monoclonal antibody, semirinumab, in patients with mild to moderate AD. Methods The phase 2 Laureate study included a randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind period, during which participants with mild to moderate AD received 4,500 mg of 4-semirinumab or placebo every 4 weeks for 48 or 60 weeks. Participants who chose to continue in the subsequent optional open-label extension received 4,500 mg of semirinumab every four weeks for up to 96 weeks. Co-primary efficacy endpoints were changed from baseline to week 49 or 61 on the 11-item version of the Alzheimer's Disease Assessment Scale Cognitive Subscale, ADASCOG 11, and the Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Study Activities of Daily Living, ADCS-ADL, scale. Secondary efficacy endpoints included change from baseline on the mini mental state examination, MMSE, and clinical dementia rating sum of boxes, CDRSB. Safety, pharmacokinetics, and pharmacodynamic effects were also evaluated. Results between December 3, 2018, and February 27, 2020, 624 individuals were screened, 272 participants were randomized and 238 were included in the modified intent-to-treat population, 
received greater than or equal to one doses of study medication and underwent baseline greater than or equal to one post-baseline assessments. Baseline characteristics were well balanced. At week 49, the semarinumab arm demonstrated a 42.2% reduction, minus 2.89 points, 95% C minus 4.56 to minus 1.21, P equals 0.0008, in decline on the Otiscog 11, co-primary endpoint, relative to the placebo arm. However, no treatment effects were observed on the ADCS-ADL scale, co-primary endpoint, absolute difference between the two treatment arms and the ADCS-ADL score change from baseline of minus 0.83 points, 95% C minus 3.39 to 1.72, P equals 0.52, or on the MMSE or CDRSB, secondary endpoints. Semarinumab was safe and well tolerated. Discussion based on the results of the pre-specified co-primary endpoints, this study was negative. While semarinumab had a significant effect on cognition measured by the Otiscog 11, this effect did not extend to improved functional or global outcomes. These results may warrant further exploration of semarinumab or other anti-tau therapies in mild to moderate AD. Next article from Chest. Redefining the role of bronchoscopy in the workup of severe uncontrolled asthma in the era of biologics. Background. Severe uncontrolled asthma. SUA, is frequently treated with biologic therapy if a T2 phenotype is found. Bronchoscopy is not routinely recommended in these patients unless a specific indication to rule out comorbidities is present. Research question. Is routine bronchoscopy safe and useful in phenotyping and endotyping patients with SUA before the indication of a biologic therapy? Study design and methods. Prospective study of consecutive patients with SUA who were referred to a specialized asthma clinic to assess the indication of a biologic therapy. Patients were clinically phenotyped as T2 allergic, T2 eosinophilic, and non-T2. All patients underwent bronchoscopy, and systematic data collection of endoscopic findings, microbiology of bronchial aspirate, and presence of eosinophils in bronchial biopsy were recorded and compared between asthma phenotypes. Cluster analysis was performed accordingly. Results 100 patients were recruited and classified as T2 allergic, 28%, T2 eosinophilic, 64%, and non-T2, 8%. On bronchoscopy, signs of gastroesophageal reflux disease were detected in 21%, vocal cord dysfunction in 5%, and tracheal abnormalities in 3%. Bronchial aspirate culture isolated bacteria in 27% of patients and fungi in 14%. Three clusters were identified, nonspecific, upper airway and infection, the latter being less frequently associated with submucosal eosinophilia. Eosinophils were detected in 91% of bronchial biopsies. Despite a correlation to blood eosinophils, five patients with T2 phenotypes showed no eosinophils in bronchial biopsy, and three patients with non-T2 showed eosinophils in bronchial biopsy. Only one patient had moderate bleeding. Interpretation Routine bronchoscopy in SUA eligible for biologic therapy is a safe procedure that can help to better phenotype and personalize asthma management.
simulating target trials comparing early and delayed intubation strategies. Background Whether intubation should be initiated early in the clinical course of critically ill patients remains a matter of debate. Results from prior observational studies are difficult to interpret because of avoidable flaws including immortal time bias, inappropriate eligibility criteria, and unrealistic treatment strategies. Research question. Do treatment strategies that intubate patients early in the critical care admission improve 30-day survival compared with strategies that delay intubation? Study design and methods. We estimated the effect of strategies that require early intubation of critically ill patients compared with those that delay intubation. With data extracted from the Medical Information Mart for Intensive Care for database, we emulated three target trials, varying the flexibility of the treatment strategies and the baseline eligibility criteria. Results Under unrealistically strict treatment strategies with broad eligibility criteria, the 30-day mortality risk was 7.1 percentage points higher for intubating early compared with delaying intubation, 95% C, 6.2 to 7.9. Risk differences were 0.4, 95% C, minus 0.1 to 0.9, and minus 0.9, 95% C, minus 2.5 to 0.7, percentage points in subsequent target trial emulations that included more realistic treatment strategies and eligibility criteria. Interpretation When realistic treatment strategies and eligibility criteria are used, strategies that delay intubation result in similar 30-day mortality risks compared with those that intubate early. Delaying intubation ultimately avoids intubation in most patients. Effectiveness of Flexible Bronchoscopy Simulation-Based Training Background The implementation of simulation-based training, SBT, to teach flexible bronchoscopy, FB, skills to novice trainees has increased during the last decade. However, it is unknown whether SBT is effective to teach FB to novices and which instructional features contribute to training effectiveness. Research question. How effective is FB-SBT and which instructional features contribute to training effectiveness? Study design and methods. We searched in base, PubMed, Scopus, and Web of Science for articles on FB-SBT for novice trainees, considering all available literature until November 10, 2022. We assessed methodological quality of included studies using a modified version of the Medical Education Research Study Quality Instrument, evaluated risk of bias with relevant tools depending on study design, assessed instructional features, and intended to correlate instructional features to outcome measures. Results We identified 14 studies from an initial pool of 544 studies. 11 studies reported positive effects of FB-SBT on most of their outcome measures. However, risk of bias was moderate or high in 8 studies, and only 6 studies were of high quality, modified medical education research study quality instrument score greater than or equal to 12.5. Moreover, instructional features and outcome measures varied highly across studies, and only 4 studies evaluated intervention effects on behavioral outcome measures in the patient setting. All of the simulation training programs in studies with the highest methodological quality and most relevant outcome measures included curriculum integration and a range in task difficulty. Interpretation Although most studies reported positive effects of simulation training programs on their outcome measures, 
definitive conclusions regarding training effectiveness on actual bronchoscopy performance in patients could not be made because of heterogeneity of training features and the sparse evidence of training effectiveness on validated behavioral outcome measures in a patient setting. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Circulating CC16 and Asthma, a population-based, multi-cohort study from early childhood through adult life. Rationale, club cell secretory protein, CC16, is an anti-inflammatory protein highly expressed in the airways. CC16 deficiency has been associated with lung function deficits, but its role in asthma has not been established conclusively. Objectives, to determine 1. The longitudinal association of circulating CC16 with the presence of active asthma from early childhood through adult life and 2. Whether CC16 in early childhood predicts the clinical course of childhood asthma into adult life. Methods, we assess the association of circulating CC16 and asthma in three population-based birth cohorts, the Tucson Children's Respiratory Study, year 6-36, total participants, 814. Total observations, 3,042, the Swedish barn slash children, allergy, milieu, Stockholm, epidemiological survey, years 8 to 24, total participants, 2,547, total observations, 3,438, and the UK Manchester asthma and allergy study, years 5 to 18, total participants, 745, total observations, 1,626. Among 233 children who had asthma at the first survey in any of the cohorts, baseline CC16 was also tested for association with persistence of symptoms. Measurements and main results After adjusting for covariates, CC16 deficits were associated with increased risk for the presence of asthma in all cohorts, meta-analyzed adjusted odds ratio per 1 SD CC16 decrease, 1.20, 95% confidence interval, C, 1.12 to 1.28, p less than 0.0001. The association was particularly strong for asthma with frequent symptoms, meta-analyzed adjusted relative risk ratio, 1.40, 95% c, 1.24 to 1.57, p less than 0.0001, was confirmed for both atopic and non-atopic asthma, and was independent of lung function impairment. After adjustment for known predictors of persistent asthma, children with asthma in the lowest CC16 turtle had a nearly fourfold increased risk for having frequent symptoms persisting into adult life compared with children with asthma in the other two CC16 turtles, meta-analyzed adjusted odds ratio, 3.72, 95% C, 1.78 to 7.76, P less than 0.0001. Conclusions Circulating CC16 deficits are associated with the presence of asthma with frequent symptoms from childhood through mid-adult life, and predict the persistence of asthma symptoms into adulthood. These findings support a possible protective role of CC16 in asthma and its potential use for risk stratification. In the Journal of the American Society of Nephrology Research and Non-Research Industry Payments to Nephrologists in the United States Between 2014 and 2021 Background 
Financial relationships between nephrologists and the healthcare industry have been a concern in the United States over the past decade. Methods To evaluate industry payments to nephrologists, we conducted a cross-sectional study examining non-research and research payments to all U.S. nephrologists registered in the National Plan and Provider Enumeration System between 2014 and 2021, using the Open Payments Database. Payment data were descriptively analyzed on the basis of monetary value and payment trends were evaluated by using a generalized estimating equations model. Results From 2014 through 2021, 10,463 of 12,059 nephrologists, 87%, received at least one payment from the U.S. healthcare industry, totaling $778 million. The proportion of nephrologists who did not receive non-research payments varied each year, ranging from 38% to 51%. Non-research payments comprised 22%, $168 million, of overall industry payments and monetary value but 87% in the number of payments. Among those receiving payments, the median per physician 8-year aggregated payment values were $999 in non-research payments and $102,329 in associated research payments. Male nephrologists were more likely than female nephrologists to receive research payments, but the per physician amount did not differ. However, non-research payments were three times larger for male nephrologists and increased by 8% annually between 2014 and 2019 among male nephrologists but remained stable among female nephrologists. The top 5% of nephrologists receiving non-research payments received 81% of all such payments. Conclusions Between 2014 and 2021, 87% of U.S. nephrologists received at least one payment from the healthcare industry. Notably, Non-research payments to nephrologists have been increasing since the Open Payments Database's 2014 launch. Male nephrologists were more likely than female nephrologists to receive research payments. Next we will be going over articles in the Nephrology Dialysis Transplantation. Treatment and Long-Term Outcome in Primary Nephrogenic Diabetes Insipidus Background Primary Nephrogenic Diabetes Insipidus, NDI, is a rare disorder and little is known about treatment practices and long-term outcome. Methods Pediatric and adult nephrologists contacted through European professional organizations entered data in an online form. Results Data were collected on 315 patients, 22 countries, male 84%, adults 35%. Mutation testing had been performed in 270, 86%, pathogenic variants were identified in 258, 96%. The median range, age at diagnosis was 0.6, 0.0 to 60, years and at last follow-up 14.0, 0.1 70, years. In adults, height was normal with a mean, standard deviation, score of minus 0.39, plus or minus 1.0, yet there was increased prevalence of obesity, body mass index greater than 30 kg slash M2, 41% versus 16% European average, P less than 0.001. There was also increased prevalence of chronic kidney disease, CKD, stage greater than or equal to 2 in children, 32%, and adults, 48%. Evidence of flowuropathy was present in 38%. A higher proportion of children than adults, 
85% versus 54%, P less than 0.001, received medications to reduce urine output. Patients greater than or equal to 25 years were less likely to have a university degree than the European average, 21% versus 35%, P equals 0.003, but full-time employment was similar. Mental health problems, predominantly attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, 16%, were reported in 36% of patients. Conclusion This large NDI cohort shows an overall favorable outcome with normal adult height and only mild to moderate CKD in most. Yet, while full-time employment was similar to the European average, educational achievement was lower, and more than half had urological and or mental health problems. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.